Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. I want to thank our first Untold Story sponsor. You're used to companies sponsoring shows. Well, we're really lucky to have Scott Oford, the creator of CryptoMining.Tools, sponsoring this show. Scott is a broker of ASIC Mining Gear. What's that mean? He helps people buy and sell their miners. Scott has created a free Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and ASIC hardware comparison chart, which can be found at CryptoMining.Tools. That's CryptoMining.Tools. It's the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI that actually includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The Mining Profit Calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you more realistic profit projections. Check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at Oford Scott. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. Thanks, Scott, for sponsoring Untold Stories. Untold Stories is powered by BlockWorks Group, the only event and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premiere, digital asset conferences, and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today is really special for me. It's the first time I'm actually going to be interviewing my guests here in the studio in lovely Florida. It's like 100 degrees outside, though. It's super hot. And we're just actually chatting about what type of sports that we could do because my next guest, Leonard, he's like, well, it's like our winter time now because it's 100 degrees outside, maybe like 40, 45 degrees Celsius, and we just can't can't do anything. My next guest, Leonard Lopin, um, a actually really good friend of mine, lives here in Florida. He is the chief technical officer of Byte Federal, one of the largest Bitcoin ATM companies in the United States. He's also the founder of MarsCoin, an overall great guy, very interesting Leonard, thank you for coming to the show today. Thanks, Charlie, for having me. So you started. I, I want to talk about Marscoin. So you started Marscoin <laughs> in 2013, and it's on it's on Coin Market Cap. It's traded on exchanges. Um, I don't own any, and so if I did, I'd have to say like, hey, guys, I own some Marscoin. But tell me about why did you do that? Yeah, in 2013? so so I I discovered Bitcoin in 2011, and uh, something strange happened around 2013 where. Um, I think people thought, uh, you know, Bitcoin might not be the only uh, kid on the block. What about uh, creating uh, forks of Bitcoin and some some alternative versions? This was kind of kind of the pre-ICO days, if you will. The the, the first uh, thing you could do in those days was just take the code of, in this particular case, Litecoin. There was like Pipercoin, Namecoin, yeah, right. Bitcoin, and, and it started out serious, right? Namecoin, and and then all of a sudden you had these very strange coins that just seemed to be like a Marvel character, and someone just slashed it on a coin. Like and, what? Um, I don't know. I was Avenger like, I, coin. I, at, at some point, I saw Mooncoin. I thought, like, this is getting ridiculous. So, okay. for my listeners to envision this, you you go to you know 2012, 20, you go to CoinMarketCap.com, and you're not going to see Ethereum. You're not going to no. see you know like like Tron or or, or, Nothing. or Tezos or you, you're, <clears throat> you're sitting on Bitcoin Talk for the most part as as the central information hub, right? And you're watching what the community is doing. <laughs> And uh, all of a sudden, there's Litecoin, and people are starting to talk about it. Could this really be? People hated on Litecoin for a oh, while. Oh yes, oh yes. Well, some still do. <laughs> yeah, but it was like Charlie Lee wasn't seen as like a, almost like a god amongst men as he is now. Right. I love you, Charlie. But um, Litecoin was no, seen as something really very like controversial. What's, what's the point of it? Right. Exactly. Very controversial. So you had some some initial Bitcoin maximalism, definitely, and there were the heated discussions uh, that there's going to be uh, the network effect of Bitcoin will not allow any other coin to exist. But people still tried, and um, and uh, I was very uh, um, skeptical, if you will. Um, but did enter co- co- discussions with a lot of my friends about I'm, I'm a space enthusiast. I really love the idea of uh, expanding mankind, colonizing other planets. We don't uh, really have a choice, do we? I don't think we have a choice. And and if you start looking into it seriously, like we can't be stuck on this rock forever. It's it's like putting all your, your eggs in one basket. It's just not a smart idea. So, um, and, and also the positive aspect of colonizing, let's say, for instance, Mars, creating an offspring of mankind that will just 
just be amazing for culture, technology, science. So the the thought though that we had in the discussion that we entered was, um, well, if you look at the history of how, how North America was colonized, it's really fascinating because that was, for the most part, private industry, a private enterprise where the idea of shares comes from, people uh, took a ship and uh, split it into parts, into shares, in order to minimize the, the risk. And they would sell shares of this ship that would take settlers over to, to the United States. So they weren't selling shares of land, they were selling shares of the ship? They were selling shares of the ship because sending out a ship was a very risky endeavor and you wanted to spread the risk among a lot of participants. Yeah, the East and India Trading Company, exactly, the Dutch East right? India Trading Company. And you Company, had the, yeah. the merchants of London and others. And uh, when America was discovered and the first settlers wanted to move over there, the idea was, okay, if we if we gather some funds together, we can make this extremely expensive uh, project happen. And everybody who buys into these shares into the ship and, and de facto buys a part of the future colony will have a right, a stake, if you will, in this future economic development. And so this this piece of, of history is, is quite interesting, and we know what happened after that, the, the, the blossoming of the United States and the riches that poured into, into Great Britain, uh, partially because of that. And so the, here was the idea, well, why don't we take a cryptocurrency and try a planetary fundraiser where we let everybody on the planet, not just a Wall Street broker, but everybody on the planet take part in a uh, in a in a coin, if you will, buy part of it, use it. But the more people use it, the more value is, or the the, the more the the value of the initial stakeholders increases. So we we uh, created Mars Coin, and the idea was to donate uh, five hundred thousand Mars Coin initially to uh, the Mars Society and uh, the Mars One Project, which at the time were the biggest proponents of Mars colonization and nonprofits. So that was the idea: generate this coin hand over a big check, which we did in 2014 to both organizations. How much did you give them? Uh, 500,000. 500,000 really? Marscoin, yep. That was, at that point, that was basically 99% of all Marscoin that existed. And the idea was that if people take this coin and start using it, the value might increase, just like we saw with Bitcoin at the time. And the hopes were that these organizations would then be able to maybe do some studies or, or fund some little projects. And with a positive uh, feedback loop, if you will, it further increase the valuation and then maybe even make it possible to have a to have a colony on Mars at some point. But the idea was a social experiment. A basically. social experiment. It was a social experiment, yes. And the idea of an experiment is not always to succeed. It's Correct. just to, have, to create an hypothesis. Correct. To make people aware that um, cryptocurrencies allow a, a planet-wide funding, if you will, of very audacious goals. I feel like Bitcoin is the social experiment too. It still it, very much is. It absolutely is. And and um, if you think about it, I never thought that um, other coins have a really um, easy chance uh, supplanting Bitcoin on planet Earth. But it was a different story for, for let's say, uh, uh, Mars. I don't think that's their... The, those are the goals of, of the actual coins to like actually... Um, overtake bitcoin no not not definitely not not now i mean in those in those early days it was maybe okay maybe we can find something that is going to be um better than bitcoin we can experiment around um but yes yeah, since then we've seen that the network effect of, a, of an existing coin is pretty strong right um but if you think of if you think if we ever make it to mars and set up a colony there will probably be a bitcoin of mars right a, a you mars don't think we can have the same coin well, the technical difficulties are such that you have a uh, distance There's between a, Earth and Earth and yeah. Mars, and uh, and it's between four minutes when the planets are very close, light speed. It is up to forty minutes when they're far from each other. So, a protocol, an internet connection, um, um, creating blocks over that distance wouldn't work. So Mars would would start its own Bitcoin. So that would be cool. You'd have a a Mars Bitcoin, correct, and an Earth Bitcoin, yep. and you literally would be having atomic swaps across you, both You chains. could, and that someone in our, uh, when, after we started uh, MarsCoin, there was a gentleman who came up, so the community exploded, it was really interesting to see, and it pulled in a lot of people who were interested in the cross-section of space exploration and, and cryptocurrencies. And there was one uh, person I remember, he came up with this idea of an interplanetary coin. An interplanetary coin, it has a very, very slow uh, block generation uh, timeframe. And these two, and there's basically exchange 
exchanges on two planets where you swap, let's say before you leave Earth, you swap your Bitcoin with this interplanetary coin and you to hop on a, on a SpaceX rocket, you fly over six months later, you arrive on Mars. And by the time maybe two or three blocks have confirmed your, your yeah. money over this interplanetary coin and you swap it back into the local Mars coin. And while it's being confirmed, it's time locked basically until your rocket ship lands something like that yeah so it was just an initial idea but it's fascinating it was fascinating to start thinking about um commerce and uh, trading between planets and cryptocurrencies would make this possible how else would you do it how else you'd have to rely on these centralized parties and the problem is is that because moving data across from one planet to another planet is so slow and controlled by a centralized party, whereas now the internet is relatively free, that you ne- literally need to rely on someone solving the Byzantine generals problem, which which was Bitcoin, to, to, to trust the information that's coming into the other planet. So the information's coming from one planet to another. How do you trust that the data is real? For example, if you're on Mars and someone's writing you a letter mm-hmm. on Earth, how do you know that that letter is actually yep. what the person wrote? No, it's, it's absolutely true. So so cryptocurrency <clears throat> with this social experiment of Marscoin was something where we could show that it solved a lot of very futuristic, if you will, problems that may not be tackled for the next 50 years, but the but the software solutions or ideas are there to play with and experiment with. Um, and uh, and that was a quite a fascinating, fascinating episode. So you so you're playing with Marscoin, and at this point, did you had you been running uh, by Federal? No, this is this is uh, two years before by Federal. Um, I had been trying other little projects because I liked the uh, the ideas and technology of of Bitcoin, and I'm a software engineer. It's my background. Um, I um, developed a a little meta trader type. Um, uh, yeah, trading desktop, if you will, program that was focused on cryptocurrencies in about 2013 or 2012, very early, and also wrote a um, an automated uh, loan investment robot. If you remember BTC Jam, sure. Yeah, BTC Jam was the hit. So people but they all rely on the centralized companies. A they, lot of them ran away with their money. That and that was the problem. There were a lot of people who <laughs> ran away, and, <laughs> and and part of that part of the reason for writing these bots was to figure out which of the loans were actually more trustworthy than others, okay. and have an automated system kind of make how did you how did you tell how did how did you how did your bot or your algorithm tell which loans would be better than other loans well i was looking at historic data on the platform and and developed like a a trustworthiness um heuristic like a scale or a number metric that would tell me i could trust it they they displayed like the originating country uh whether this person had a facebook account or paypal account linked all these kinds of little pieces of information profiling yeah profiling in in fact isn't profiling bad don't we learn that well for for if you will if you if you creditworthiness yeah Yeah. creditworthiness that's that's pretty much what they what they tried to establish and these were people from africa indonesia and india that were looking for microloans so um, it was a very interesting platform. Unfortunately, it didn't last very, very too long. But um, it was fascinating to um, to have this robot basically while I was sleeping uh, invest on my behalf or, or issue microloans to people in Africa trying to buy a couple more goats. And, uh, and, and for them, it was a life-changing what year event. Was this? this was 2000, um, yeah, I think 2000. 14 or 15. So you're, so you're launching Mars Coin to, to fund um, travel to Mars and mm-hmm. colonization of Mars. You're um, loaning money for people to buy goats mm-hmm. in Africa. Yep. What else were you doing? <laughs> uh, I, had a regu- I had a regular software engineering job. So these were projects in the evening. But I, I worked also on another project that uh, where I tried to bring uh, price transparency to the medical industry. I just before you get into that, I just want to I just want to talk about like those early years, what we're talking about, mm-hmm. and those things you did were so important to the the cultivation or the 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 um, discovery of what crypto is, because like you, there were a few dozen people doing the same type of things mm-hmm. with full knowledge. I'm sure you knew that the chances of actually like this paying for you know, and actually pushing towards Mars uh, colonization is very small. But that wasn't the point. Correct. The point was to create this social experiment, to create ideas, and to make people's brains open up to the idea of cryptocurrency doing these other things. 
And that's so important because we wouldn't be here today at all. We would not be here today. None of us would be in crypto. None of the listeners, none of you guys would be here today if it weren't for guys like Leonard doing all of these things in their spare time. That's why this is so important. Yeah, the space really exploded around us. Um, the the creativity that that was unleashed by the thoughts of this white paper of Satoshi, I think that was that was such a trigger where, where all of a sudden you you realized there you saw a future that's possible. Maybe it will happen in five hundred years. Who knows? Two hundred. That's what a visionary is. A visionary, absolutely. A visionary is not someone who figures out step by step by step. And this is actually what the judge told me. Literally, I'm being sentenced, mm-hmm. and the judge is telling me. Like what I he's like he's like Mr. Shrem, you're you're a visionary, but your problem is that you don't think steps through. You think you go from step one to step ten, and I'm saying to myself, well, that's what the definition of a visionary is. Um, but in, in to his credit, he's right. What I was doing, you know, you ha- in in some respects, especially when it comes to other people's money or different laws, you have to think steps through. Yeah, so it, this is fascinating because we, we didn't have this kind of clash when the internet or software started eating uh, the publishing industry, right? Blogs came about, people were starting to do things that typically only a paid-for journalist who was credentialed was allowed to do. Uh, when this, when software started eating the music and film industry, we did face a big pushback, oh, sure. right? But here, for the first time, we had software starting to eat into governance and finance. And that's, of course, a core of power in any state. And so there there is a ton of... And just like you said, also dealing with other people's money is a is a, a much bigger risk factor than let's say writing a blog and some opinion um though of course in some countries you're not even allowed to do that so yes in the, in the one hand you had all of a sudden software engineers and visionaries being able to see a future that they could tinker with or start to explore uh which upended in many ways the way things had been done for millennia if you think about it, I was—I um, uh, always thought if if we ever made it to Mars, for instance, it's like a silly, silly thought. But if it's not too too silly, if you start thinking it through, there won't be any paper money on Mars, right? You, you don't have trees. You won't run around. Why digging. not? Why well, can't be Mars cash? Well, you can you can uh, you can plant some trees, but you would probably rather breathe the air than cutting them down. And the the gold that you pull out of the ground will probably be used rather for industrial uses than printing uh, or minting coins. So cryptocurrency, the ability to have computer code, software, take care of um, institutional um, uh, aspects like voting, finance, insurance, titles, ownership, all of that um, was a very, very powerful concept. Tell me about your backgrounds growing up you have an accent most yes. people realize that for an yeah. hour 16 yeah. minutes into the show no, usually they realize it when i <laughs> open my mouth and i'm like really is it that bad but um, yeah because you're from north florida that's why right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm from north florida that's correct no i'm um i'm originally from uh, germany east germany actually i was born um on the What's other east side germany? east germany that's you know the, the, a long time ago, i know what east germany is co- like, <laughs> no i know there's communism on the on the wrong side of the german border and that's where i where i grew up i was born 1978 when uh when the Soviet Russia ruled with an iron fist and uh, East Germany was uh, behind the curtain, that's that's uh, that. Those are my early years. What was what was it that, what was that like, East Germany in nineteen seventy something? Um, you know, of course I was young, but um, okay, but the eighties, right? I do, I do remember. Like it was gray. Um, it was uh, very monotone. Like um, I remember walking for a long time to this one supermarket with my mom. Everything was empty. Like the, really, the shelves were empty, and I was I was excited because I was going to get ice cream there. Any the ice cream, you have to imagine there were two types of ice cream. Okay, these are like waffles. One was vanilla, and the other one was chocolate. That was it, and it was plain. It had like I think just a white wrapper or so around it. Um, and the cars, of course, they were all these uh, trabis, these old uh, stinking Russian. Well, that was the height cars. of communism. That was the height. That was the height of communism after seventy years of relentless <laughs> innovation in in the in the communist sphere. Now we look at communism back and we say like, what a failure it was. Well, most people do. Mm-hmm. Um, growing up in it, two questions: Did you realize, and at what age did you realize? that this system that we have running here is not working? That's the first question. And the second question is, did you did you have friends growing up or people, your parents' friends, 
that actually did believe in communism. Like nowadays, we all think that everyone knew that communism was a bad idea, except for the people at the top, because they were the uh, sheltered. You know, yeah, the view. sheltered. But did, did actually people believe in it? So I think you had two types of people. You had the uh, virulent anti-communists, which were becoming less and less. And then you had uh, the, the masses that didn't care. They just wanted to live and accepted the status quo. And then, of course, you had the party system with their spy. And when we talk about the, 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 the German Stasi, this police state, was actually incredibly sophisticated and extremely scary. So this is the one thing I'd really like um, our listeners also to remember. This this was a very scary place to be alive, to walk around and have an opinion. What does that mean? Well, i give you an example. My, my, my dad, um, he found out in his 30s that his, his dad was actually Austrian. And so he realized, look, people couldn't leave the country, right? Once you were born there, except if you were like a um, diplomat or something, you could not leave or Eastern high Germany. Or high-ranking businessman, whatever. So for most people, it was like a prison. And uh, when my dad realized he was actually partial Austrian, he went to the embassy in East Berlin, the Austrian embassy, ran into it, basically distracting the guards outside, the German guards ran into it and basically said, you guys have to help me, you have to get me out of here. Um, after that, for the next two years, the the, the German uh, did he get Austrian citizenship? He at eventually, that point? he eventually get, but um, the uh, the German um, secret police was after him. Now the problem is he wa- he knew after walking into the embassy, he they was known, targeted, yeah. and he was known to the Austrians. If he had not done that, it would have been much much more difficult for him. But once the Austrians knew there was a potential citizen, it was a difficult difficult for the East German police to do anything. However, later uh, they dug up the files after the East Germany collapsed, and my parents studied their big big folder that was put together by the secret police and there were plans in there to kidnap him and uh, crazy stuff and parts of the relatives who were actually spies spies on behalf of the government really yes what did your father do for work he was an engineer, an electrical engineer. Okay, so he's not arts. someone that East Germany would want to lose. That was the point. That's and he worked for. That's the other fun thing. He worked on Russian uh, um, uh, boats that okay, were in so the shipyard. Okay, so he's really someone they don't want to lose. He really yes, correct. Yeah. Uh, eventually, after two years, this ordeal uh, lasted, and then we were kicked out. Actually, we were kicked out of East Germany by the East German government. So, in a sense, lucky this was 80, 84, So five years before the wall fell. Um, and you asked me when I realized that the system didn't work. I was a small kid, right? But I, I remember sitting in the airplane leaving East Berlin and I asked my dad, why does this smell so bad in this plane? He said, like, well, they, they pump a gas into the plane to make sure that there's no one hiding here before they, before they send they it Do they really? Up. Yeah, they did. And, um, so they pumped? The they pumped some, the I think, fuselage. yeah, some tear gas or something, just to see if anybody would be a stowaway in the in the plane, making sure that uh, people wouldn't uh, flee the country. And once we arrived in Austria, I remember walking into a into a supermarket there with my mom, and the colors just exploded in my face. I couldn't I couldn't <laughs> handle it. I didn't know what this was. Like this was like a like a playground or something, but it could not possibly be a supermarket. That feeling that you had is similar when I when I walked into Walmart for the first time. When I got when I got released from from prison, I was like, this is way too much. <laughs> yep, like sensory overload yep. right now. I had to like exactly. leave and wait in the car. Yep, that's that's how that feeling was. Yeah, so this is that's my uh, my little background. And um, so you grew up in Austria after that. Basically. I grew up in Austria after that in Vienna. Yeah. With memories of of East yeah. East Germany. Yeah, and I think that definitely sets you apart in the sense that you appreciate. Um, a lot of aspects and you ask you start asking questions early about society politics uh, why certain things are run and you don't take things without asking questions are you following uh, Austrian politics right now I do I do. What do you think of what's going on? This is a segue, but I'm yeah, just curious. It's an interesting segue. Yeah. So Austria is, is kind of unique in the sense for, from for the German speaking very countries. proud people. They're Austrians. very proud people. Very proud people, and that has to be said first. Yes. Um. And so they're they're actually their politics is more conservative and and national, if you will, than than German politics would ever be at this point. Really? Yes. Austrian yeah. is they're they're very proud. Yeah, they're very proud of their heritage, what they have. And so they don't like to be called German. Not at <laughs> not Germans or Austrians. No, no, that that history is close. Yeah, there there was, however, interestingly enough, there was a period right after the First World War when when Austria lost its empire and lost Hungary and all the sure. other Serbia and all these little parts. The Austrians thought, you know what, 
this is this is never going to survive. We can't survive. We're too small. And there was a there was a push inside Austria to unify with their with their the German people, if you will. And of course, the Nazis totally sure uh, they used that advantage yeah. of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So so right now the um, what's going on in Austria is there was this whole big scandal, and yeah. um, you think the prime minister was he's a young kid he's like he's my young. age yeah he's really young it's, it's interesting to to see they have a lot of relatively young politicians in austria too and um it's a good thing oh, right? i think so i think so yeah it's a, it's a smaller country there's ways to get into politics become very active very early on um and they had a they, they taped a, a video and this video was sponsored by someone else yeah and that's still it was a whole how. sting operation it was a sting operation it cost actually i think i saw an estimate somewhere three hundred thousand euros to put this video together on a on a well, it's smart if you want to take down, you know, these right wing people um, and you just prove how connected they are to Russia and everything. That's really what you all you have to do is create. Yeah, a it, was a, it was a it was a pretty clever a setup, if you will, and took down the whole government. Yeah, but, but Austria, as small as it is, always has these very fascinating things going on. OK, so so you're growing up in Austria. What brought you to this country? Um, I actually, that's a little other segue. I, um, after finishing high school, I went to Asia for three years and, uh, lived in Sri Lanka for a while. And when I came back, I started, studied in Germany. So I, you can't just skip over that. What did you do do over there? I, um, I, I, I became a Buddhist monk for about three years in Sri Lanka. Um, and that was because in my, in my mid teens, um, after been, I have been really. I What's think. What's the title for a Buddhist monk? Um, his his deliverance. Be, well, no, you. Well, people say uh, depends where they are. Um, I think they're just venerable sir or something venerable like that. Venerable sir, sir yeah. Um, you could have married me. I could have married you. Yeah, you could have been the. Oh yeah. You could have been like the priest. No, actually, as a Buddhist monk, you 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 can't. You're you, not. You, you can't. No, officiate? you don't. This funny thing is, Buddhism and such is is so. Um, secular in a way, but it does not it does not support or they could give blessings after a couple is married, but they don't legally are giving. Uh, you know, interesting. Able. So you so you lived there for three years. You became a Buddhist monk. Yep. Why? Well, I was fascinated by the story of Buddha, and I wanted to kind of replicate his enlightenment. That was the it was a very scientific. <laughs> I think we all do version. though. Yeah. Um, Isn't the idea of seeking enlightenment that you never actually? seek enlightenment but the journey to enlightenment is enlightenment in and of itself well buddha had like this really master plan uh, uh and um explained step by step what you were supposed to do and i thought like i'm going to take this very seriously okay started. and you're going to follow it i like... want to you know it's a german in me right yeah like, that's this, german because <laughs> it's very detailed i learned the language and, like, it's okay, not a I'm blueprint this... though well i thought it i thought it was so uh dense and and um defined that I, I can replicate it and I can follow up follow the steps so that I mean that you write a whole book about the the episodes in this in in Sri Lanka but um eventually eventually I decided to leave uh, came back to Germany studied computer science and and artificial intelligence machine learning at the time at the time um, my approach was computer linguistics because um, now of course AI is more a almost like a statistical uh, operation but in those days it was still not clear what would be the best push to move ai forward and i was fascinated by languages always have been how ai the mind, in the 90s ai in the late 90s yeah and how the mind works and i thought maybe language is a way to understand and get a crack at this at how the brain functions and what makes intelligence work and you know the, the intersection between machines and minds you can you can tell it's been a, a, a theme in my life from the from the very beginning so um, studied computer science and then after about three no sorry after about five years working in Germany in a, in a software company um, I decided that Germany didn't feel very very home why not um, I think part of it was my upbringing in Austria I had this Austrian vibe of of you know feeling very um, proud of where you are who you are and and being in in sync with yourself and a lot of germans are still suffering this trauma from the second world where they feel very uneasy in the their own guilt skin. or is it the guilt yeah and... the guilt yeah they i'm I, I don't know what it is but it it's um even today even today yeah not do, everybody of do course do austrians feel the same guilt i don't think so i think it's in austria it's a little bit different and austrians <laughs> have done this clever trick that they thought well hitler was born here but he actually became german so at that point it became a german problem <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and the austrians were fine if you will but um 
for the for Germany, I think it's still an underlying issue, and um, in in many ways, the, the the way society functions, I felt very alienated and um, had a trip. I came over here in two thousand five for the first time and fell in love immediately with the American people, the the um, the culture, even if you will, the friendliness, the climate, of course, in Florida, and the opportunities. And that's for me as a entrepreneurial type. I think something I think I got from my dad is um, the the opportunities that you have in America are still incredible. So you're working in um, in computer science here. You moved to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point did you learn about Bitcoin, about crypto in general? There was one uh, beautiful afternoon. Uh, Set the stage for us. Yeah, it's it's. I'm working out of the house for okay, a small a... startup with a friend of mine. Okay. We're basically uh, in a startup scenario. I'm, I'm sitting on the in the in the chair in his living room. What was the startup? The startup was a um, um, a newsletter, email marketing newsletter company. Okay. Uh, that's what we were trying to do. You're it, actually, sitting in the chair in the living room. I'm sitting in a chair with my laptop programming every day. He's basically the salesperson. He's sitting on the other desk. And I'm on. Whenever I need a little moment for relaxation, I go to Hacker News, uh, which is a same. Yeah, yeah. Hacker News is my. That's the source. Okay, it's out. Everybody with an IQ over 180 is on there. Hacker <laughs> News, Hacker Day. It's it's all these sites. Perfect. So I'm I'm checking out the headlines and Bitcoin flashed on there, of course earlier, but. My fault. I didn't take heed. I didn't take notice. That's a very common denominator. I have. I almost every guest I have says that they had heard about Bitcoin from from at one point, didn't pay attention to it, and then heard about it again, and that's when they gave it. The credence. second, the second time. The first time may have been also 2011 or 2010, but the the first time for me was 2011, early 2011. I run across this uh, Hacker News news article. I click on it. They're talking, discussing this Bitcoin paper, white paper. So um, I'm I'm looking at it, and and mind you, in 2011, I had done some day trading in 2008, 2009. So I'm so trading stocks, all of this penny stocks. Oh, this is not not foreign material to me. Um, and from a financial perspective, um, school financial knowledge, right? I had an idea how the banking system worked, but I, I thought that was actually accurate. But then it turned out to be extremely false. How did you think that it worked? Well, the typical idea: people put money into a bank, bank loans out, makes money on the on the loans, and everybody's happy. That's not how it works. That's that's not quite <laughs> the, the whole fractional reserve banking, uh, central banking. All of that was uh, kind of swept under the rug, right? The amount of power and the changes of of gold standard, all of this. Um, but in those days, no. So I, I come across the white paper. I read through it, and I tell my buddy, who's a who's a salesperson, I tell him about it, and and say so like, there's people mining this thing, and they're actually making money. And he's like, Leonard, you're new to America. Let me tell you what this is. That <laughs> <laughs> we call this a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. This does not seem to be just a uh, Ponzi scheme. There seems to be more going on because they solved this Byzantine general problem. And I'm a computer scientist, so from sure. from my perspective, this is actually a fascinating something you learn about in textbooks. Yes, yeah, as as not being solved, sure, you know, and now it's solved. This this uh, anonymous person has solved this problem, and the way he solved it made sense. It seemed very simple. The whole play with this game theory approach and mining was just mind blowingly intelligent. It was really smart. It was as he yeah. re- he replaced that the inability to f- to figure out trust with a rat race between parties who had their own interest at heart. And uh, giving them a monetary incentive to to all agree on the truth was just beautiful. It was just a great concept. And so we started, of course, taking our graphic cards and just throwing them at, yeah. at Bitcoin like everybody else did. I really need to thank Scott Oford, an ASIC mining gear broker, for sponsoring today's show. As a mining equipment broker, Scott Oford wants to make sure his clients are well-informed and making data-backed business decisions. That's why he created the only free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI for miners. Check out the epic Bitcoin mining profitability calculator that Scott has created at CryptoMining.Tools. There's also a great ASIC mining hardware comparison chart that can help you understand which particular Bitcoin miner might be the most profitable. It's a better way to compare the efficiency of various models of ASIC miners and see how the price of the miner and the efficiency impacts your mining profitability. So check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at Oford Scott. That's O-F-F-O-R-D-S-C-O-T-T. It's such an interesting thing because 
the Byzantine general's problem is is a difficult concept to understand why. And the other day on Saturday, I was down in Fort Myers giving a, a talk over mm-hmm. a, over a dinner to a group of, of people, about 40, 50 people and about 55 and older. And I'm literally sitting there and they asked me, well, what is blockchain? Why is what's so important about this? And I and I explained, I I said, well, with Satoshi solved what was so important was this thing called the Byzantine general's problem. And they're like, oh, okay. What's the Byzantine general? Yeah, what's that? <laughs> and I said, well, it's actually one of the most, it's the oldest, uh, one of the oldest problems that has been a paradox and unsolvable by some of the most famous mathematicians of the world. And it was solved by this guy named Satoshi Nakamoto. And like you said, what it is is when you have millions of people that have their own agenda and their own financial incentive to lie um, and not, be aligned, how do you play that against them and make it right. so we have this common system without a centralized party? Um, and we have this common system where we all have to now, um, we're incentivized to tell the truth and to be aligned. And it's such an amazing, amazing thing. And that's really like when Satoshi wins the Nobel Prize or something happens down the road, it's going to be for that. It's going to be for solving the Byzantine general's problem. It, it will. You don't think it's Craig? No, absolutely. <laughs> I had to just, I had to just bring this off. No. Um, yeah, no, that I totally. That guy's such a fraud, and I'm gonna get sued <laughs> just for saying that. But I've been sued by worse people than him. No, I, I, uh, I agree that the the Nobel Prize would be for for this solution that he found there. That's that's pretty, uh, pretty amazing and fascinating. And and just like you said, it's not even easy to understand for people in our industry. Uh, sometimes you hear the idea of uh, fault tolerant uh, Byzantine generals problem, and it's not just that you have a note. That, that turns off and all of a sudden the whole network is blocked. The idea is really that even if you have a malicious person, um, w- whatever they can do, the system still has to function. Or if you have b- below 51%, right, um, malicious actors, the system still is supposed to come to a status of sure. truth. And and that's that's really amazing that someone figured that out. And um, and not just that, not just figuring it out in the paper is one thing, but then actually coding it up in a workable first version and releasing it that's that's another uh whole story it's a lot it's a lot easier for people to understand bitcoin when they have some of it when they have when they're holding it in their wallet on their phone or on their computer a physical bitcoin or something tangible mm-hmm. right um it was very difficult to get bitcoin in, in 2011 i started bit instant for that it was, reason it was extremely difficult um, it still is but you've made it a lot a lot easier for people to get bitcoin and as much of as much as people want Bitcoin online, like with Coinbase's, we still, especially for our first time, we still want a physical manifestation of it, right? So yes. your, your machines are kind of like oasis is in the desert. It was OSI. Is, how do you, oasis, that? oasis. Oasis. What's the plural for oasis? Good question. We need to look that up. Yep. Um, so 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 it, it really is like an oasis. That's so, you're, so you're in whatever city you are in, in the Midwest or in Georgia, and you're wanting into this Bitcoin thing. Yep. Your machines are not just these ATM machines. They're they're physical manifestations of Bitcoin there's, for people to go there and there's like the, play the hand the, the hand of Satoshi is reaching into mainstream. Yes, that that's yes. that's what they are. They're they're like a, a, a plate of cryptocurrency technology that's offered in a in a in a box and makes for people who like I I always um, tell the story. This was really fascinating. Early days, we had a couple of ATMs out, and um, I was ma- uh, doing maintenance on one of the machines. All of a sudden, a, a young kid shows up with his parents in tow, and uh, they were older. Like I think he was in his mid twenties, and they were maybe in their in their fifties. And um, he had this desperate look on his face, and um, he he kind of didn't notice me really. He just ran to the machine with his parents in a, in some really heated discussion. Then he turned with both hands pointing to the machine and and in his final statement of exhaustion he said like mom and dad this is bitcoin <laughs> <laughs> because he was out of uh, arguments he's so frustrated he's so frustrated having to explain or couldn't explain it properly and then they're like ah <laughs> looking at this bitcoin atm by the way the plural of oasis is oases oases okay. i just looked it up good now uh, the german learned something there we go german austrian yeah <laughs> And um, yeah, anyway, so so we we have a lot of people who whose first experience with cryptocurrency is through an ATM. You just walk up, you take twenty dollars, 
put them in and you have your crypto immediately right and and through the process actually you learn because you have to bring a wallet if you don't we'll, we'll tell you how to do that so we actually are one of those early entry points for a lot of people to get to know it's the first impression you have a, mm -hmm. an obligation yes. to make the first impression a really yes. good one correct yeah and and talking about that one of our biggest concerns is actually trying to prevent people from getting scammed uh, I think at this point, with everything that we've learned and put on these machines and the way they operate, uh, I think we're doing a better job than a, than a banking branch or Western Union trying to really make sure that people who How? come... Well, there's there's a very, very sophisticated scams out there, in which, of course, we didn't know when we got started. And the whole banking system is riddled with these scams, originating very often outside the country. But you have people... I'll give you one idea. One story that I heard recently uh, from one of our customers. Actually. I got to tell you about the pet scam after this. The pet scam? After, okay. yeah, you tell your scam so, story. So here's this lady. She's telling me about what happened to her. She was contacted on Facebook by a friend of hers. So it's a Facebook message she gets from one of her friends, which says like, oh my God, look, there's this, Amer there's this uh, government service that... Um, um, oh no, sorry, that was a different one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was a different one. Well, that was that was a government service that will give you free stuff, and she expected a truck to show up the next day, but she had to do a down payment. No, the more sophisticated one is a call from the IRS, right? So the IRS calls you up, uh, and Social Security Administration. Yeah, and Social I've Security Administration calls. says like very serious, and um, your identity has been uh, has been stolen, and some some a crime, money laundering has been committed in your name. You have to immediately get a new Social Security, and and then what they do on the phone, they tell people to call their local police office or to expect a call from their local police office. So they have to have they make the the victim Google their own local police office give them the hand the phone number over to the scammer then 10 minutes later they get a call which the phone number looks oh, yeah. like it's coming it's spoofing right it's coming from the from the police office and someone else will pretend to be a police officer and organize the handover of the social security uh, um, card but before that happens they make them go and pay a fine of some sort which of course is the scam that's how it works and this impersonation of authorities because people are mentally so uh, primed to believe authority at this point this is not a topic for us in the cryptocurrency space sure. right it's sad actually that they will just like a like a sheep will not even think twice they are so afraid that they'll lose their credit they'll lose their uh, whatever else they'll lose uh, from a from a government perspective yeah. identity perspective that they'll go through with this with a scam had we maybe say cryptographically based way to identify another person or another um, institution, I think that would go really long ways. So how do you protect people from this? Well, what we do is we stop people. We try to slow down. Mind you, at the point where they come to a Bitcoin ATM, they're completely sold on the stock. Oh, yeah, because right? they're, they're getting in their car. They're, 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 they the have machine. blinders. It's like when you go to the bank and you see all these scam warning signs, you don't. You think yeah, that's for other people. That's not for sure. me, right? Um, so we, we try to break them down. If they're first user, we make them sit on a screen for 30 seconds. At least they can't do anything else. There's messages popping up. We send them. If there's any indicator this might be someone out of... Uh, your immediate uh, immediate network, network yeah. then then we we sent them extra warning messages but it's difficult to break through to people who were we are at the last mile if you will of of, of such a scam um mind you this is of course the minority of transactions but it's still something that um that the whole financial system um is bombarded with and uh, where compliance and regulations have created laws and behaviors that sometimes actually make it harder for us to predict. Well, consumer protection is an important thing, and it's consum consumer protection is one thing that um, I believe in, and that it's a moral obligation for the a business. Absolutely. Um, but there's also, I feel like, a place for like self-regulatory organizations or even like uh, local government organizations to like your local your locale your you know your local Florida. Um, government organization to do some sort of consumer protection. I don't know how I, that is yet. I, I think you know, coming from the from the software industry, um, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by this by this whole process, because if you think about it, we don't have a committee or a regulatory institution for web servers. We don't have a, a, a organization that 
creates guidelines for databases. What happened in, in many now fundamental uh, programs in our industry is through trial and error and a lot of pain over many but iterations. Those weren't money. Those weren't those, money. Well, and they weren't it, health. Well, that, I was thinking about this too. But if you if you really think about it, web service databases are in, integral to medical facilities, to medical devices, to banks. Yeah. Uh, so obviously there has to be some kind of give and take. But industry software uh, iterations are extremely fast. Law is not very fast. It's a different process, right? Yeah. And you would almost want innovation not to be handicapped because it could come up with solutions that might help you and, and do a paradigm shift on the problem that you have rather than slow it down artificially because you want to protect people at this moment in time. So there has to be some kind of negotiation, right, between what we have right now and where especially the cryptocurrency industry could take us. I think in many of these instances through cryptography, we could have a much safer, more transparent world. A lot of solutions, world. yes. Yes. And, the, and I think this is what we see in the United States. There's a struggle, even on a political policymaker uh, side of things, sure. to negotiate those two. We've had, a, we've had a similar situation. But before I get into that, I feel like governments don't want – some of them do, but most of them don't want blockchain to solve their problems. They want to continue – solving their own problems their, their own way because using it through blockchain technology could potentially um, rid them of some of the power that they have. Absolutely. I think that's... Uh, that's Even a, though they may be better solutions yep. than the bureaucratic ones or whatever it is. The United States is maybe in, in many regards not even the best example, but there's so many countries on this planet where once you're in a political system, which is just which is a couple of families... Sure. They own the Control wealth of the nation. Yeah. Yes, and it's a very, very sad situation. For many people, are these are these are prison chains, invisible prison chains. Speaking of which, the um, so the scam that we dealt with in in 2011 is very early. 2012 um, was a very very sophisticated scam actually, and we didn't we couldn't catch wind on it for a while. But what was happening was when you go to to BitInstant, you go to our website, you want to buy some Bitcoin, mm -hmm. you go to BitInstant.com. You'd say you type in in the form field. You'd say I want to buy five hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, and you type in your zip code, mm -hmm. and it will tell you the closest location to where you where you can buy Bitcoin from. So let's just say it was a Walgreens mm -hmm. pharmacy. Um, then it would create a, a slip for you, print it out, or have it on your phone. Yeah. You go to this location. The person at Walgreens would just actually scan the barcode, and then you'd hand the five hundred dollars over, and then you'd get your Bitcoin. What was happening was. There was this website out there that was offering people to buy exotic pets. Pets.com? No, it was <laughs> it was like uh, exotic pets. It was like exotic birds and okay. alligators and snakes. Okay. Pets that are largely illegal in this country. So these were pets that people wanted, but they couldn't buy legally. Mm -hmm. um, so what they would do is they'd go to bid and so some of them were le like, like very like King Charles Cavalier dogs, you know, yeah. pets that are hard to come by. Um, they would create these. Um, they would create a fake website and have pictures and names of these pets and where they. We hunt. have some of these pets here in Florida now. Yeah, we do all in the Everglades. <laughs> <laughs> and so the the person would do is you go to the website and you say, "I want to buy this. There's five hundred dollars for this alligator." And then the, right. the the owner of the scam was printing out these slips, and people were going to the store and it have the BitInstant logo mm -hmm. on it, and paying the five hundred dollars. And the the Bitcoin was going to the owner of this of the scam, not oh, to the people. Shoot. And so, like a week later, they'd message us and say, "Hey, where's, you know, where's my my parakeet or whatever?" Yeah. <laughs> and I said, what, are you, what are you talking about? Oh, no. And we get and we call it the pet scam, and we say, "Oh, another pet scam today." And this, well, yeah. nothing we could have done to really stop it. So we put on the slip the actual Bitcoin address and say, "Is mm -hmm. this your Bitcoin address?" And um, did did you print this slip yourself? It was up to us. There was, you know, we, we actually right. did call the authorities. No, we we did. We had these people call their own police precincts. We yep. we didn't know what to do. We had all these examples, um, but it was up to us as a as a business to do our own consumer protection for our own customers. 
um, even though they weren't directly our customers. So we had to print on the slips. Like if you're, if you're using this to buy a pet, be careful. It's a scam. It's a and scam. If all you know, this was going out to like thirty thousand people. Yeah. And like what are you talking about? <laughs> no, this is this this uh, actually f- sounds very very familiar. It's it's for us too. Like we we try very very hard to make this first experience of of getting sure. your Bitcoin a very positive one. That's important to us. It's dear to dear to us to our heart. This is what we're in, um, in cryptocurrency. So, so how's Byte Federal growth been? Tell me about like what's been going on during the bear market. Um, well, the interesting thing with uh, with cryptocurrency, and you probably noticed this with BitInstant too, is there is a, there's a need. Um, no matter what, an no underlying matter need. no matter what, and we had a discussion yesterday actually on the Henry Rains show too, um, and uh, a little shout out here to Andy and, and Henry. But uh, the discussion was about the the interesting niches that Bitcoin fills, like online gaming is, for instance, another one where a lot of people all around the planet realize that um, the the best way to to actually transfer money is using a cryptocurrency simply because with cards you have chargeback you have the the fees in the middle yeah. with banking very often some uh, places don't allow certain banks to operate or whatever and with cryptocurrencies they would even get a discount it's just easier and faster the money would be there immediately there's no chargeback so many sites give them a discount and people don't realize that it's not just for like sending money like one type of transaction complex business deals require large amounts of money to move and be split up and it takes time. I'll give mm-hmm. you an example. We you know, Real estate transactions, settlement just takes days because you have to wait for the law escrow to get the money and then that's to clear and then you have to get the money. And if you're trying to move, you know, do these things quickly, it just takes so much time. That industry is so ripe for a yeah. blockchain approach. It's, sure. it's actually unbelievable. There's a, there's a lot of these industries, I think right now, they have this extreme administrative paper overhead simply because they were able to get away with it. Um, that I think you'll, we'll see in the next years, decades, the, the, the blockchain solutions kind of encroach on them. Do you really think that? Yes, Do you really sir. think we're going to have solutions and with, with, with blockchain technology? really disrupt like how we do some things yes. or will it remain like a novel fun word that people say that they're doing no so so of course i have to maybe specify this i think there's a lot of hype around uh what simply a database could do right a distributed database it doesn't have to be a blockchain but i think there's a few cases uh where in in, in my case i would always want to tie it to a public blockchain to be honest right if, if well, i permission blockchains private blockchains are like scams it's it's a very often it's no more oxy- than google, google shed spreadsheets correct you know what i see what's happening with ip ibm hyperledger and other products or projects is they could have done many of these projects with a regular distributed database but they could never get everybody on board and it seems like it has the keyword blockchain with this keyword blockchain they kind of have a chance now to build something that is still just a um, distributed database with maybe a little bit more um, structured ways to let other vendors participate in it but in theory if they really would have wanted to build this they could have built this before uh, Bitcoin and the blockchain ever came came about right so there's definitely that however I do think that you will have uh, a future where a lot of the um, machines will talk to each other so if you think about it if you think about how you en- envision a, a divine uh, people say always like uh, technology if you don't understand it looks like magic right if you look at our cell phones and and you can see a future where you walk up to a house or a car and by just buying it in the spot the ownership the title will be transferred you're basically unlocking a car getting into it and it's yours and maybe five minutes later you'll you'll sell it on the market and everything will happen in the back with avatars on constantly active markets globally sure right while you as a person just experience an extremely higher uh, standard of living that will to someone 500 years ago look like you were you were divine because doors open to you and uh, machines basically listen to you and, and do what you bidding i'm trying right now to to my friend and i actually in austria we're, we're trying to, to to split a piece of land and build uh, a few apartments and then we'll rent it out just as like a long-term retirement thing and i don't even right now we're in the conceptual stage because i don't even know where to start <laughs> i don't speak any german and i don't even know like the legalities the the banking all these different things yep i'm lucky he is there and he does have yep. some of it but as an american like i don't know as an American, can I even own property yeah. in Austria? Like, what's 
Whereas if this was all done through, like like you said, like a, a mobile phone and app. And I think, I think how, who knows how long this is away from us, 10, 20 years. Technologically, we have solved this problem. We could have, uh, an, uh, this was one of my first like sci-fi thoughts. Like I was thinking, okay, imagine with this blockchain technology would allow us as like someone is driving down the road or the Tesla is driving down the road with someone inside and they're sitting and they're thinking the Tesla's hey, doing the driving yeah, the Tesla's doing the driving right the machine and paying the paying the tall booth too sure. and then he's having this thought about a new product or an idea and he has this brain implant you know, Elon Musk's uh, uh, nerve uh, sure. link yeah and um, and he has this product idea and his product idea is being sent to the moon for some advertising by some advertising agency and maybe a prototype is created on Mars and someone else is buying the the IP in Japan and all of this is happening while he's driving by the time he gets home and opens his door and and or the door opens for him and he sees his uh, his big screen in his house he can see all the microtransactions of people actually oh, buying yeah. this product flow basically That's really just cool. water on the on the wall so i think at that point you've replaced money with karma or car it's in a sense social credit in a sense that's what it is right if if i if i uh, take my 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 living time and create value for other people and i store this in gold or whatever or bitcoin and i can later exchange that for someone else's life or someone else's uh, good doing if you will so in if you push this far enough out i think you will have capitalism achieve something that communism was dreaming of a, a world in which basic needs are completely taken care of, but just you being a good person and, and being creative and helping other people. It's kind of like Bitcoin. Live. If enough people are part of the social credit system and it's achieved its mass you know, achievement, then you wouldn't want to do anything. You'd be financially incentivized to stay in the system. And it goes to an interesting point because we talk about like why humans, you know, we go back to, to crypto being a social experiment. It's a good way to bring this all together. Mm-hmm. We talk about why crypto is a social experiment. And then we talk about what is a social experiment itself and then why is it important? But what's what's really interesting is humans. We're humans. Mm-hmm. What makes us tick? Um, and I believe and I've read and I've studied that there 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 are incentives. You know, obviously the incentive to survive is the the utmost incentive for us as humans that's number one everything we do in life everything from breathing we do involuntary for survival why i i don't i can't answer that question so that's number one number two a lot of people believe that financial incentives is number two no i don't believe that i believe that that's number three number two is social incentives i believe that everything we do we do financially that's not for survival is for uh, validation as human beings. At the end of the day, human beings, we don't want to die alone. We want to be buried yeah. in a grave next to someone else. So everything we do, and a, and, a, and I believe that a, a, a much bigger incentive than financial incentive is social incentive. Uh, having other human beings approve and validate us is a is a much stronger incentive than financial incentive. This reminds me very much of a of an amazing book I read a few years ago. Um, it it's called uh, the Moral Animal. Um, it's a book on evolutionary psychology, and a lot of what you're saying is is making me uh, remember remember that book. It it is very fascinating to look from a biological perspective, even at the at primates, and see how the social interactions are driving a lot of what's important to them. Sure. Simply because in the past, if you think about it, um, n- seeing someone having social credit meant a way for survival. survival. It yeah. meant survival. It's, that's that's my whole yeah. point. It, it used to be so- social credit was more important than financial credit. But now you can be the biggest asshole in the world. And if you have money, you're yeah. going to survive. Yeah, there's this there's this episode, I think it was in the book where they said, like, look, when when females were sitting in a little tribe, you know, in Africa, and the, and the guys were coming back from a hunt. So the question was like, okay, either you date the guy who has like the brawn, the really strong guy that just slaughtered the bull, or you date the guy who has a great networking effect who can pull in a lot of other people helping him, right? So there's, so there's, um, there's an interesting play between people and i think money plays money's representation of the social credit in many many ways it's really interesting how that how that works out and i think that bitcoin taps into both right bitcoin and crypto in general taps into the financial incentive but also it opens up the ability to create this social credit network 
Um, and a lot of cryptos have tried to do that, like Ripple, but I don't believe that Ripple is going to be able to achieve that because it, it starts from a centralized system, even though it's a lot of the founders of Ripple, who are my friends, had good intentions, obviously, when they leave and good intentions are not transferable. But that concept of having a social credit system, I think, is really where crypto is going to change the and, world. And, and a public one. So I agree yeah, with you. I it's think it's got to be a public right, one. I think so. People want to see something as essential as the currency of of their nation or currency of the globe to be something that's that can't be tampered with. And that's how cryptocurrency is going to bring about world peace. I agree. Leonard, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really, really, really wonderful. And I think our listeners are really going to have learned something very interesting um, from this episode. And if they want to follow you more, how can how can people follow you? Um, they can go to Twitter. Um, uh, I have my little Twitter universe there, Novalis78. That's where you can see some of my, my thoughts. Um, other than that, just check out ByteFederal, B-Y-T-Federal.com. And they got to check out one of your machines because they're going to be doing, and they already are doing more than just being Correct. able to buy and sell Bitcoin. Correct. So, uh, among other things, uh, buying gold, for instance. Too. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So if you go to ByteFederal.com, you check out what uh, what we've done and our plans for the future. Thanks, Thank Charlie. You. Thank you. Me. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. I created Untold Stories to preserve the history of this crypto movement and tell the stories of the people and how this movement really came to be. So I really want to take the time and thank my first sponsor, Scott Oford, who is a crypto mining broker. Scott helps people buy and sell their crypto miners. Scott also created a free Bitcoin mining profitability calculator and an interactive ASIC hardware comparison chart that you can find at CryptoMining.Tools. That's www.CryptoMining.Tools. It's a free online tool for calculating profitability and days to ROI that includes the impact of the Bitcoin block reward having. The Mining Profit Calculator lets you put in your estimated uptime to give you more realistic profit projections. Please check it out and find Scott on Telegram and Twitter at Oford Scott. That's O-F-F-O-R-D S-C-O-T-T. Thank you, Scott, for helping secure my mission here at Untold Stories. New episodes go live every Tuesday at 7 a.m. EST. Links to our Apple and Spotify channels are in the show notes. You can also follow me on Twitter, Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. See you next week.